0: hi i'm pinky and i'm lucy and you're listening to thank folk for feminism
1: you certainly are and we're very excited that you've joined us this week because of course the world has started to open up again we hope that you're joining us with kind of a renewed love for life having seen people outside of your home. (laughs) Pinky what have you been up to this week?
0: Uh, I've actually seen people in my back garden Uh, so at my home rather than outside my home. Um, Yeah I had a group of friends come over on Friday evening and we just had such a wonderful time drinking wine, sitting around a fire pit uh, clutching at hot water bottles because it was freezing cold, but we were determined to spend time with each other catching up. Um, and I don't think once actually we mentioned COVID like we just talked about future plans and life going forward and hopes and dreams for the next 12 months. And it felt like such a refreshing uplifting space to be in that has just made my heart full of happiness for the rest of the weekends.
1: That's so dreamy. I absolutely love that.
0: How about you? What have you been up to over your Easter weekend?
1: Oh, well, as you may be able to hear in my voice, I've been laid up with Lurgy. Not COVID, thankfully, but the whole family came down with the most kind of gross, cold-based grossness. And uh, that's the only way I can think to describe it. And it just absolutely wiped us out. So really, I've done very little with my Easter weekend capitalize not one iota on the way the world has opened up this week and i'm just hoping that we all feel a little bit better soon i did have one interesting thing actually happen before uh before we all fell prey to the grossness um and i did an interview a radio interview and it's been yonks right because musicians have had nothing to talk about for a year um and they invited me on as a uh, me as a solo artist not me the co-host of this but we ended up talking about what I'd been doing creatively in my enforced year off and of course the podcast came up and I spoke like I did or like I think I do on the podcast we um passionately about this topic and uh, what was strange was when I came off the interview I really doubted whether that was the right thing to have done because saying this stuff in that format of me as a musician and not me facilitating conversations in this was was scary actually. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's hard right to figure out you know we are so many things in so many different spaces and of course you know we wear multiple hats and multiple ways of being and yet for some reason I think it can be really difficult to do what one of my absolute heroes Brené Brown talks about in terms of kind of showing up and stepping into the arena right and making ourselves vulnerable and I think you know, talking about feminism and feminist issues, like really does make us quite vulnerable at times, depending on the space we're in, particularly if we don't know how that's going to be received by the audience or the people taking part. And of course, for you, there's that extra bit of knowing that this is your livelihood and, you know, you need to keep people buying your records and coming to your shows. And therefore you have to think about, you know, what you're saying, I guess, in some senses.
1: Yeah, and I suppose I don't, uh, you know, I trust that people who, you know, like my music and follow me and have seen me at gigs, you know, know I'm a decent human and I'm not going to spout like awful stuff. But I suppose, uh, although it's all the same me, as you say, you know, people who listen to this podcast, you have to assume they're kind of open to the conversation because they've turned up to a podcast called Thank Folk for Feminism. But, you know, if they come to a Lucy Ward show or what have you, it's a different thing potentially. Um, So, you know, it's going to be a learning curve of how to kind of balance these two uh, roles that are completely authentic to who I am as a person and how it all ties in. So, (laughs) what is really good and helpful is that it segues really nicely into this week's conversation on the podcast because the three women that we interviewed have a lot of experience in this and actually touched on it in our conversation with them we were lucky enough to interview the, the bit collective which is a group of Scottish women who are coming together to address gender inequality within the folk scene um harassment and power imbalance in the folk scene and they um, started started up and people might have spotted it, the hashtag trad stands with her movement to stand in solidarity with people who've experienced um, harassment and uh, judgment and abuse on the folk scene. We were lucky enough to chat to Jen Butterworth, Katrina Hawksworth, and Rachel Newton.
0: And so without further ado, by way of introduction, Rachel Newton is a multi-award winning singer and harpist. She is a member of the She, Furrow Collective, and Lost Words spell songs. And she's recently launched a new duo project called Heal and Harrow with Lauren McCall. Her music has been called Haunting and Compelling by The Guardian.
1: Katrina Hawksworth is a Scottish pianist, composer and researcher. And Katrina plays with vibrant folk band Heisk, as well as performing in duos with Sally Simpson and Caitlin Ross. She was recently nominated for Composer of the Year at the Scots Trad Music Awards and is currently studying for a Masters in Folk and Traditional Music with a specific interest in gender equality. And last, but by certainly no means least, is Jen Butterworth. She's one of the UK's top guitarists and is well known for working with a range of award-winning folk musicians, including duo Ross Ainsley and Ali Hutton, and the supergroup Songs of Separation. She was recently awarded Musician of the Year at the Scots Trad Music Awards and nominated for the same title at the BBC Radio 2 Folk Awards. So here on this podcast, you've got two Musicians of the Year and one uh, Composer of the Year. It's just super exciting to be surrounded by such talented women. Oh, we
0: absolutely get the best guests on this show, Luce. (laughs) We do, we do. (laughs) It's probably worth saying at the top of this episode that we had been planning to record this episode for quite a long period of time. And of course, in the wake of doing that, there was uh, the tragic death of Sarah Everard. And we wanted to let you, our listeners, know that whilst this episode explores issues around safety and safeguarding and looks a little bit at raising awareness of violence against women in the folk industry, It talks much more broadly about themes rather than naming specific parts of violence, Um, what happens when you speak out, and the collective power of the sisterhood. Nevertheless, we encourage all of our listeners to take care of themselves and think carefully about when and where and how to listen to this episode in order to look after their own well-being. everybody lovely to see you perhaps we could start by each of you telling us a little bit about yourself and your involvement with bit collective in particular
2: hello uh, i am jen butterworth <laughs> i am a musician and educator based in glasgow and i got involved in this discussion originally because i actually thought that it was good to be congratulated for playing the guitar like a man and learnt very quickly that that actually was not the case and since then I have been involved, been involved in a huge amount of different discussions and I guess the reason why I'm part of it is because I don't want other women to come through the scene and experience the same that level of misogyny or worse. Hi,
3: I'm Rachel Euton. I'm a singer, harp player and general kind of loudmouth. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> I work with with a lot of women and kind of quite female-led bands, including a band called The She, which um, is comprised of six women. And we were told by a festival organiser that he already had his female band for that year. And that, was, that kind of sparked... That and a few other things kind of sparked off a bit of a, a kind of path for me of, well, sort of ranting on social media, which I've kind of stopped doing, but... <laughs> occasionally <laughs> still do um but yeah and um, that kind of started me off on a bit of a path but I've always been really interested in you know in feminism and and feminist sort of issues but yeah and and myself and Jen formed a bit collective kind of about five years ago after a panel discussion that I hosted at Connections and Katrina joined us a few years later thank goodness <laughs> hi I'm Katrina
4: Hawksworth I'm a musician and a student again I would did my undergrad in folk music at Newcastle University and they were really great and have also sort of improved even more since then in allowing students to really dig into whatever area of folk music they want to. And I spent a lot of time looking into gender and feminism and then sort of left the course to be a musician and realised that it was quite different like off the paper. <laughs> experiencing it all in real life as so I joined the clip to them and, um, and have since gone back, well, virtually to Newcastle to do my master's based on more gender and folk music work.
1: So great to have you all here. Thanks for having us.
0: So the first question we wanted to put to the three of you, I think really, is why you feel like raising awareness of sexual harassment and abuse within the folk scene is important?
3: Well... Gosh, yeah. We thought we'd start with the big one, you know? <laughs> I mean, the Bit Collective started around five years ago and it was kind of, I suppose, the catalyst of that was sort of discussions that we were having around representation of women in music. And that was really our main focus for the first few years. I think, I don't want to speak for, for everyone, but certainly for me, I had always known that sexual harassment and sexual abuse was a huge part of of the story of why women weren't represented as as well in music but it was really it just it felt hard enough at the time to bring up women's representation that sort of that going that step further and calling out abuse in such a small scene really felt like just too big a step you know sticking your neck out at all at the time was just you know, we, we got quite a hard time as it was. So actually we were, I suppose we were really grateful to those that did stick their neck out and, and spoke up about their experiences. The first, for us, the first kind of, of that was Misha Foster fantastic organization in Ireland and and their kind of testimonials about what what they'd experienced and then some of the people that spoke out in the English folk scene as well and subsequently Scottish folk scene so it's really and a lot of those were kind of younger women it's really down to them I think that we felt that we could then speak about it and tackle it and so I'm not I just realized I'm not really answering your question very well but yeah that was kind of why we did it I suppose but yeah it was just like I say it it was kind of this unspoken thing that we all kind of knew until that was addressed we couldn't address equality in the, in the in in music you know um because it really it it puts people it completely has put a lot of women off their careers and it's we've lost a lot of musicians to their because of their experiences and that's like a huge you know it's a huge part of it really totally
1: This is the really difficult thing about recording these things over Zoom because you're like, who jumps in? (laughs) That answer, you said that you didn't really, you know, weren't answering it well, but actually, I think you've drawn out so many important themes. And it sounds to me like the role of Bit Collective became about amplifying these voices and you know uh, giving them a platform and spe- holding space for people coming forward about traumatic issues is a huge emotional undertaking but also a very you know important because it allows other people to come at the conversation
2: I just I remember when the when this, the story started coming out from Misha Foster and there were other and the blogs were appearing I remember like sitting at home and sort of looking online and thinking who's helping like whose responsibility is it to help with that and and realizing that nobody was picking up the phone and trying to find out how people were and if they were being supported and I think that's at the same time we were we were all kind of feeling the same the same way and it's like what do you do when there isn't an HR department in the folk scene and you can't be the HR department because we're we're voluntary and we're doing we're doing what we can but I think what we've learned is to signal and to try and pull as you say pull people into the conversation not just people who would have had experiences with it but people who might have responsibilities in their jobs to get stuck in and get involved and maybe not know how to take that first step as well
1: so for people coming in this afresh and wanting to know how they can engage with bit collective are you gathering women's stories are you signposting people to support how does it work in
2: practice it's a, a bit of everything actually to be honest at the moment it's like there's so many things to do and there's so much to explore and so many conversations to have that we're just trying to do a little bit of all sorts so like we're going through training ourselves we've we do have a a way of collecting people's stories but not necessarily a way of doing something with them that's that's public it's just it's more about us learning and, and trying to find a path of support in in that way So you mentioned the Misha
1: Foster project being a big kind of influence and starting point for what you folks were doing. And I know there's been a lot of conversation between the conversations they have raised and the conversations you folks have raised. Hashtag trad stands with her movement. I guess my next question is, what do you think? think needs to change to make the folk industry feel safer
3: i think you know and it's i suppose it's very similar to the discussions that that we've been having as a wider community on this in this country the focus needs to not just be on how women can feel safer in terms of like what they can do and what even what what organizations can do to make you know it it needs to be how can we change this culture like how can we completely change the culture that there is where it's you know, it's really the responsibility of the men in the scene to to have these conversations and the people that lead the organizations and that run the festivals and you know, to have these to have these difficult conversations and, and really address that culture because it's a huge shift like needs <laughs> to happen,
0: isn't it? <laughs> I was just thinking that's also really complex, right? Because, you know, Lucy and I talk a lot about traditional songs and particularly traditional songs with lyrics and how most of those lyrics are often deeply misogynistic. So we're talking about changing a culture and yet we're also recreating a culture by continuing to sing those songs and keep those narratives. Do we have to look at that aspect as well?
2: I'd I'd say yes, yes. Is it because I, I, I heard you're um well part of the the podcast with Nancy sort of talking about a similar the similar thing and the different approaches that you can have to it and I think that um approaching it with with the understanding and with empathy for for the situation and for what's going on now and for what would have been perhaps going on at the time I think that like even just approaching it with that knowledge and understanding is a starting point whether you throw the books out of the window <laughs> or rewrite them or, or whatever I think yeah I don't know what what do you guys think I think it is about that critical lens
1: yeah,
3: I, I definitely think that the song topics and how we approach those songs are really important, but I don't think that that necessarily has a huge impact on the behaviour of men in the folk scene. So I, I think that that's part of a, a wider conversation, I think, but I think what really needs to be done is is much more direct and potentially less about the music and the art itself it's it's really more it's more practical than that I think in a lot of ways I mean we part of what we do is we meet gosh we've met with a lot of different people over the last uh, wee while we've talked to promoters we've talked to agents trying you know talking about what can be put in a contract you know what what can be agreed between musicians promoters, organisers. Agents, what can we all agree on as an industry? You know, as a as a working industry, policies. You know, things kind of something that's tangible and something that can be agreed upon. And that's that is we realised very very complicated.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. But there's a lot of good. There's a lot of interesting steps. You know, that that can be taken that way. I think that yeah, changing policies are a really good thing. But talking to to women about what you can put on your rider and in your contract yourself that you should really expect just as a human, <laughs> you know, like like a safe place to get changed and you know just just basic things and the way that you want to be introduced on stage by an MC as well. There's a lot of stuff that can be done, just little steps I suppose towards a, a bigger a bigger change.
1: Yeah, and flagging issues, right? You mentioned like how you want to be introduced. I presume we're all referring to here where women get introduced as pretty girls or whatever, and it, it, it can. Uh fall into this trap of not mentioning what talented, brilliant musicians they are, right? So I think that's really interesting because the things you're suggesting kind of just make sure the conversation is out there, right? Because people forget or they think they're being nice or they know you very well because you've worked in the scene forever. But just kind of reminding ourselves that we have... We are allowed professional boundaries and expectations within this scene that that rightly and wonderfully refers to itself as a family, right?
3: Absolutely. I think that we often, as especially as women, I think generally in the folk scene and in in lots of sort of smaller, more intimate music scenes, we feel like we have to put kind of be very positive and present this very kind of friendly positive demeanor you know all the time and that can be quite hard and I, and I I feel like personally that I I want to do that and I that I naturally feel that way I am a positive person but that kind of makes it hard when you then want to you know when you do you, you do have a problem with something somebody said and you want to take issue with it and and I'm only finding now really you know I'm in my mid 30s really that that I feel very comfortable saying that I've got an issue with something and it's not something that I would have had the confidence to say always because I just don't want to upset anybody you know you want to you don't want to kind of lose work or you know and I think that's a huge thing for for all like I say for all musicians but I think especially for women yeah
2: and it's that thing where if you do stand up for yourself you you're not taken well as a woman if you stand up for yourself you're bossy and you're a problem you know and um, so you kind <laughs> of you're sort of stuck in this thing where you're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't you know
0: and that's the other cultural shift isn't it that creating spaces where it's safe for women to speak out when something isn't okay and not be being seen as like I spend my life referring to myself as a feminist killjoy (laughs) I'm not a killjoy like I'm just trying to speak the truth about you know the way you've referred to me is inappropriate and I'm not going to tolerate it but we dismiss ourselves and we do that because we're so often dismissed by other people as being difficult or risking the booking or not being invited back to whatever event you're currently taking part
3: in and that's why it's so important I think for men to to take some of that burden on as well and to to point these things out again you know we've probably seen this this conversation happening a lot over the past week we're recording this in the wake of sarah everard's murder and i think it has to be a conversation that men are having and they have to pull they have to pull people up when they when they hear this these misogynistic or you know harassing things happening to to women and and when it's their friends as well and even more importantly they have to they have to do something about it that's something that we've seen throughout trad stands with her that with, you know, all of the stories that we've been getting and everything that we've seen and things we've seen ourselves. It's that kind of really, really difficult conversations that just aren't happening enough. And and that would really change things massively for the better if, if those conversations were able to happen more. Yeah,
4: certainly a lot of men that I've spoken to just feel scared about their past and that somebody, if they stand up and say, I support women and I'm here that someone's going to crawl out the woodwork and sort of accuse them of something that they might not remember doing. There's a lot of a lot of fear and I Mm -hmm. think it it sort of needs to be known that we're not we're not on like a manhunt we're not out (laughs) to get everyone but yeah accepting you might not have behaved well is just that it's a good step
1: part of the process right of becoming a supportive ally you you know better you do better and all of us I mean even through the course of making this podcast I'm awakening to what now seems sort of really obvious things that I should have had expectations of like I'm awakening to how much I'd internalize it as it being my problem or my fault just because of this patriarchal society that we live in so like I think that's a really good point about us all of us regardless of gender reflecting on the fact that you know we might not have known this at 15 that's okay we might have got it wrong And we can get better. We can get better. So you opened um, the interview, Rachel, kind of talking about how there was some backlash at first to even starting these conversations, right? Hard conversations that will get easier the more we have them. And that's already been proven in the five years you guys have been trailblazing this work within, you know, the British scene. But I wondered if if you'd experienced any kind of... Issues in particular of putting yourselves forward as bit collective with, you know, this intention of raising the conversation around women's safety and gender equality, but also being working musicians with your own careers you know do do you find there's an issue of people forgetting that you're both they think you're just the spokesman like what how does that work in practice what's happening
2: I think when when it when it started I think we were at Celtic Connections and we were hosting a, a stall at Showcase Scotland and I remember that people just wanted to come up and talk about like it wasn't even the Bit Collective at the time but they wanted to talk about women in trad and and not about and you're like well yeah it's really important to talk about those things we're at a trade show right now and we're representing our bands so you could talk about them instead you know or or a bit of both but I do find that the two things end up coming together and I think you end up being known for both and I, I I think that's a strong thing that you're sort of seen as as a capable person who's involved in a in a conversation. I certainly feel there's probably some backlash, but I feel that being part of the Bit collective means that we're a community that stands together and we've got a lot of supporters. It's not just the wee core team that we are. And and I think that that, that does make it stronger. And certainly when we were standing up on our own, like I think you know back in the beginning when Rachel was standing up you can maybe explain a bit about that but certainly I could feel the pressure on a single person trying to take on an argument whereas a collective makes it a bit easier.
3: Yeah um, I think yeah as soon as we had that kind of collective name that we could kind of say what we wanted to say from it felt it did feel much much better it wasn't just kind of yeah when, it, when you're saying it all for, uh, under your own name which is also like you say it's like your professional name it's your it's what you do this
1: is where I go I'm glad we decided to call the podcast this pinkie so I can glide <laughs> onto the radar and learn from Bit collective. you can get away with anything <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think there's power in numbers and there's power in people coming together. You know, one voice is easy to dismiss several voices is much harder to dismiss and an entire mini army is impossible to dismiss. And that's what you end up creating with something like the Bit collective right? It is one voice becomes three voices becomes 30 voices becomes 300 voices. And maybe that's where the testimonials end up. Eventually you potentially have the capacity to say, look, you know, we've got 50 different women in the industry who said they've experienced x and none of them have to be named none of them have to be known nobody has to unearth stuff that might be really difficult for them on a personal level but collectively you can create a greater good with promoters because they can't ignore that many people and potentially also make women that have experienced that feel much less isolated because suddenly it's not just them they're not unique in their experience
2: that's so true and you can feel i think from the women that i've spoken to you can feel like it's your fault someone's done something to you you still sort of feel the responsibility yourself and I think people carry that and and being able to talk about it whether it's about really specific situations or just about the general subject I think can make people feel stronger and let go of of some of the stuff that they've maybe been harboring for years.
3: I think it's been great as well that a fantastic esperance have formed um, yeah in England and that's been fantastic because you know they're they're good friends of ours and and we we kind of work together and I
1: think yeah that's been really empowering on both sides I think
2: yeah there's mutual leaning going on there for
1: sure (laughs) so for our listeners Esperance have started up as a kind of sister organization to bit collective looking better reflecting what's happening on the English scene but also teaming up with you folks to kind of widen the conversation even even further and it, it is really exciting because actually just just the existence of you and them has already meant that I have ended up having conversations with, you know, fellow musicians, male and female. You know, my agent has rung me to ask what they could be doing better. Like just conversations that just weren't happening. It's really powerful. And I wanted to ask you folks if you had some ideas or reflections on how not just people in the industry although that is interesting to hear about too but you know people who love folk music and want to support it being better from an audience fan perspective how do they support your work how do they amplify what you're
2: trying to share I guess the first thing is just listen listen to what's because I think quite often when well from my experience anyway whenever you share something that's got a message that's really important that needs to be listened to you'll be corrected on your grammar and you'll be told that the semantics of what you're talking about just aren't quite right and it's like that's not the point of the thing that's being said it's like sit back and just listen to what people have to say about their experiences and and as you say amplify their messages like the bit collective we've certainly got plans and and we have been sharing stories and data and there'll be lots more coming you know as as far as that's concerned and just just sharing it and just making sure that people are coming into contact with the information is really important
3: we have
2: had some really great support
3: from the wider folk music community it's been great to see you know a lot of fans of, of the music really kind of engaging with what we're doing which has been great because I think like like that thing of you know the worry of kind of oh it all it should all be sweetness and light and the music should be this sort of lovely kind of escape from people's lives for people you know but actually it's like no it, this you know we are real people and <laughs> dealing with stuff and, and actually I think this year more than any any time, really, because of COVID and everything, I think fans of the of music and the musicians are more and more aware of musicians' lives because you know because everyone's lives have been kind of upturned and, and musicians haven't been playing and and there has been this incredible outpouring of support from the, the community and I think that's definitely translated into what what we've been doing as well, which has been great to see. Yeah. So thanks,
2: thanks everyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's lovely as well because I feel like there's been enough of a shift when we're working online that when we go back to being in person, people's minds are on something that they might not have been thinking about before. And and I do think that when we do start going back to live gigs, there's going to be another conversation, you know, a further conversation to be had around safety in physical spaces that I would like to think there are more ears on than there would have been before. Amazing. <laughs> And
1: I thought you were going to say, Rachel, you know, when you were saying that audiences are more aware of artists' lives, I thought you were going to say, because it's literally like we've got nothing else to share. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. It might have once been new singles and now it's like, look at my pancake day creation. Yeah. I'm growing in the garden. Yes. <laughs> but yeah it's a good thing right you know finding that balance and and audiences knowing that they have power to support and uplift the scene and to demand change from the bottom up you know and as you one of you mentioned earlier on in the interview it can be really hard for artists to ask for those things particularly if they're very young or at the beginning of their career you know it's a it's a competitive industry, or at least it has been. I hope that, you know, COVID times have connected us more and that we'll go forward and uplift each other. But, you know, it's, it's a difficult industry to get started in and getting a name for yourself is difficult to work with for, you know, whoever decides that you are that. Can actually be really detrimental, so you know audiences and supporters and allies stepping in on your behalf can be really really important thing <laughs> so we 'll um, drop in nancy 's voice actually asking you this um,
2: i haven 't form, formed it properly, but shall I just say it so basically i 'd be really interested in them reflecting on that
1: mentorship idea of who was there for them and whose stories were important to them from that sort of maybe feminist or gender or different expression kind of perspective, and who they either received mentorship from um, or like looked to um, as an important voice um, for those stories. I'd be really interested in seeing that.
3: I think it's really lovely and interesting that it's Nancy that's asked that question because the first person that springs to mind for me is Sandra Kerr. Yep. <laughs>
5: I, love that.
3: <laughs> I mean, of course, Nancy herself as well. But I think earlier we talked about, you know, we, we we started five years ago and it was actually in just after this panel discussion that I put together for, at Celtic Connections. Myself and Jen were on the panel, but Sandra very kindly travelled up from, from Newcastle, um, well, from Northumberland to to be on this panel. And she was absolutely brilliant. And I just remember... I can't exactly remember what what it was that we were talking about, but at one point being quite kind of apologetic, you know, about something, and and sort of saying, "Oh, I don't know about this," and yeah, and just Sandra and, and a, you know, just completely just validating whatever it was, and just sort of, and yeah, I think I think I remember her being quite sweaty at the time, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, just sort of you know, really really kind of just making, yeah, just empowering us all and and making us feel like we really had an important and valid point to make and yeah I mean she's just such a such an inspiration
2: yeah we've actually got a list on the website of totally amazing supporters and this is one of those people and it actually from a completely personal perspective Kareem Polwart got in touch with me when I was younger and said why the heck do you have the most the foremost female guitar player in Scotland written in your blog in your biog get rid of it you don't need to say that you're a woman and, and I just I was like and she, she didn't say get rid of it but she just she asked me a very polite question that kind of pushed me on to be like oh why am I defining myself like that when I should just be saying that I play the guitar in in my bio my biog so she was one of the first people that I reached out to as a, as a mentor when I started having conversa- like hard conversations with people last summer um, after Misha Foster and I knew that we couldn't sort of like speak for a scene by ourselves um so started kind of sending messages to people to say listen would you just be a sounding board listen and and give us a bit of a kind of collective moral compass i guess as we try and try and navigate this so the people on that list are actually on the bit collective website and first on that list is sandra karen second on that list is Bord, <laughs> actually. Um, but also uh, dave francis laurie watson inga thompson rachel sutcliffe sarah jones Emily Portman, Neve Dunn, Una Monaghan, Karen Casey, Pauline Scanlon, Debbie Armour, and Pedro Cameron, who we've had so many chats with (laughs) over the last little while and have been totally amazing and actually formed really big chunks of both Esperance and uh, Fair Play within that. And Boer Frost as well. What an amazing list of people to be drawing on, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you can't go far wrong.
0: Absolutely.
4: Mm-hmm. Um, I guess for me, I, I joined the Bit Collective a little bit later. Yeah, I did my undergrad at Newcastle and I moved up to Glasgow and was just a bit lost with a lot of time on my hands trying to make it as a musician. And I kind of reached out to Rachel and Jen and I was like, oh, I've got, got some ideas, I've got some time, can I kind of come help? And I was just scooped
3: right in. <laughs> <Please>. <laughs>
4: But I don't think without without your two your support, I don't think I would be where I am now, really. really
3: oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a wash. I know.
2: And actually to be honest, like, the Bit oh. Collective wouldn't be doing what we're doing now without Katrina as well. So Yeah. High Katrina five. came
3: in Katrina came in and sorted us out completely. Totally. <laughs>
2: amazing amazing that
1: was brilliant and now you're a power trio of dreams <laughs> <laughs> well, can we take that for the website yes yes <laughs> we do well,
0: i guess springboarding from that question a little bit leads us nicely to thinking about what do we need to be doing to support women in the folk scene more broadly like we've talked about safety stuff but generally speaking what do we need to be doing to making sure we've got each other's back and i say that i guess with the lens of you know not just as artists as promoters as festival producers but also as fans as listeners as people widely involved in that folk community
2: i feel that um being completely aware of your unconscious bias and being okay about the fact that everybody's got one and understanding what that means i always try and compare different characters so if if i'm if i'm thinking about a fiddle player and i'm introducing a fiddle player and the fiddle player happens to be a woman and i think right if i was going to introduce that woman how would i introduce that that man playing the fiddle as well and would those words be similar and just always checking yourself to make sure that you are just looking at a person and not all the other sort of stuff that goes along with that i guess as well so i think that's that's one thing for me that's been really important is thinking and understanding about unconscious bias.
1: A good starting point for everything though, right? <laughs> like, you know, yeah. all of us having better conversations are oh, messed up there. That wasn't great. <laughs> I can do better. <laughs> yeah, I think
3: I think that's a huge thing isn't it and like Katrina said earlier these conversations aren't easy to have for anybody and yeah even checking your own like Jen said c- unconscious bias or privilege is isn't always easy and uncomfortable but I think it's yeah it's getting used to just being a bit uncomfortable and making mistakes and that being not being the end of the world
0: <laughs> and I guess that echoes back to what Katrina was saying earlier right about mm-hmm. men at times being really scared that if they do or say something different now they're gonna potentially be called out for something that they've done historically or previously and so I guess there's also something isn't there about taking stuff on good faith and like recognizing people have the power and capacity to change mm-hmm. and within that I think if someone continues to I don't know what the word is be a douche be an idiot like <laughs> if, you know if, if somebody is educated in some way about something they've got wrong or you know something that they could have handled differently or a way in which their privileges played out and then they continue to do it that feels less excusable but if somebody hasn't learn or they just don't know or they haven't realized surely we have to have the good faith to give them that capacity to
2: change that's so important so important yeah. yeah there's complete extremes when it comes to being a perpetrator i think in the scene and it's either you are cast into the pits of hell or you're completely innocent and there's no middle ground and there's no way of dealing with people that are sort of in that in that middle ground because i think if you're if you talk about this and all of a sudden you feel like you're going to be sort of cast aside or you're going to lose lose your friends or lose your supporters or whatever and I think that talking about it and and being understanding and and un, and understanding that people can do things wrong and and be sorry for that I suppose as well is so important
3: and I think it's so complex as well isn't it yeah. like I think what we've realized it's like you you, you do really want to be understanding and, and let people kind of learn and grow from their mistakes and and come back from things but then we've also on the other side of that, we've also seen a lot of like false allyship and people who don't seem to really understand their behaviour in the past, or starting, startlingly kind of unaware, or just completely de- like in denial of them, you know, of their own behaviour. And it's like, how do you deal with that? You know, I don't know. And
0: it's- I guess it's that tricky balance, isn't it, of being clear about what we're talking about in terms of being able to like. For me, there is a big distinction between someone who. Is not using say inclusive language or an MC that doesn't introduce you very well or a festival that doesn't have a safe place for you to get changed versus somebody who's perpetrated abuses against other people. Like, And the first, I think you give people an opportunity to learn from and the second, actually, I'm probably more in a slightly zero tolerance <laughs> camp because for me, that stuff is around power and control and if we end up excusing it as misunderstandings as grey areas as not knowing better and actually I think in 2021 people know better
1: yeah and I think actually in in our in our scene or what I am gleaning from the outside of watching these stories and women sharing their experiences coming forward is that actually you know it's reflective of what happens on the outside mostly these abuses go unreported unprosecuted unchallenged and these people continue to have in some cases, very prominent careers. And we said right at the beginning that that, that issue, that inability to question and address the big abuses upon people is, is a huge barrier to, to people being free to, to be musicians because, you know, it's just how can we, we can't work in a scene, we can't sustain a scene. Where that actually is the status quo. Of course, we're not saying it's the majority of artists, even, but it but it has been the status quo for artists that perpetrate such acts. Right? Is that kind of the sense that you're getting back from the stories that you're hearing from women?
2: Yes. And it's how do you take people on if they haven't done anything criminal, but they've abused their power to a point that it's not acceptable? And I don't have an answer to that. I don't know how to to deal with it because i have been on the phone to people who are kind of making sense of that, I suppose, as well. And it's it's so hard. It's it's easy to go, well, I've got a zero I oh, know it's not easy, sorry, Lisa, it's absolutely not easy to say you've got a zero zero tolerance thing, but it's like how do you navigate the sort of really tricky area around that when you're trying to maintain professional relationships with people and you're going to end up at a festival and you're going to meet people who you know haven't behaved that well and I don't know how you how you approach that certainly we're learning a lot about about the law and about different sort of sides of abuse I suppose and we're we're trying to learn where the line is you know and you I think that people's perception of where the line is tends to go with the, well, it's either against the law or it's not, but I think the line should be much further away from the law, because that should be the last resort, and there should be a large area in the middle of, you should not do that, and don't <laughs> please don't do that, and I think that's that's a really, really hard thing to navigate, because people don't get educated on that, they get educated on what is against the law, and I think that would be a really, really good thing for us that we are looking at, is how to educate people about what is acceptable and what is not.
0: But I guess even drawn within that, this the general public have a misconception about what the law is and where ownership sits. We know in 2003 in, in England, at least, the law changed to be named as having a reasonable belief in consent. And that for me is gospel that someone who's accused of something has to have reasonably believed that the other person was consenting. But actually, when, you know, we speak to young people, even now in the work that I do, most young people understand the idea that somebody has to give consent, but they don't understand that you have to get consent. So the onus is still on the potential victim-survivor to have given consent rather than the onus being on somebody who is initiating something to fully think that other person is consenting. And I think that's how you unpick some of that power. Some of that, is it criminal or not thing, right? If people took a step back and went, do I really think whatever action I'm doing here is something the other person would consent to then. Okay. Like, fine but how you know are people stopping and asking themselves that question I guess and if they're making a decision that yes the other person would have been consent in on what basis and what grounds are they doing that
3: yep. yeah totally and I think there's so much education's needed on all of that and, mm. and and actually I think what what we've seen is that when you put something into words and actually articulate something I think it kind of really can make it much more tangible and, and people kind of understand it a lot more I think I've been really interested in And we've talked about it a bit in the bit collective about the work that Kate Nash, the singer turned actor, Kate Nash has been doing with um, the safety chain, which is, I think hasn't actually been launched yet, but is going to look at kind of educating young men in music, a kind of sex education and working with people like intimacy coaches and, and counselors and, and things like that. And kind of, that that sounds really interesting I think we've definitely been looking at how can we how can we sort of provide that education training knowledge and and also how can we communicate that on social media and things like that how can we spread that into the kind of
1: into the music scene I guess um because it feels like that's definitely needed sounds really interesting I'd love to like see what Kate Nash is doing and um and you know we, we wholly support the the work you guys are creating on that matter because as you've said it's a really it's a really broad it's a really complex area to even begin to try and unpick and address and it's and it's also just a really thoughtful place to be coming from quite frankly which I'm sure takes a lot of emotional labor and it was making me think while you folks were talking about that about how In most industries, no doubt, but just thinking about the music industry and the folk sector, there are so many scenarios in which you have a mismatched balance of power. So we've talked about mentorship from a very positive place already in this interview. But of course, you know, mentorship can be a place where abuse can happen artists down to fan can be a place bookers to musicians like there's so many places in which artists generally although they of course also have a responsibility to act professionally with their fans and such but there are so many places actually where artists are are powerless to raise their voices let alone kind of address abuses done unto them so do you think that this work that you're you're doing there's a way for us to address that power balance or is it just about all of us being a lot more mindful about the power we have in certain situations
2: I I think mindfulness is really important understanding yeah your responsibility to other people and other people's responsibility towards you and what's what's acceptable I think it's difficult because I think from the perspective of being a mentor as well there's there's a lot of stuff to understand about like your fan base and how they contact you and how how young people might contact older people and you know different situations like that it can be really tricky and i think people can feel a bit like oh god do we have to really be that careful you know like <laughs> nobody's really doing these things are they we don't really have to do that and it's like you know the child protection for example the you know the training that we used to do every time we taught at a face or summer school or something like that i would be like you'd be like oh god you know let's just read this thing and then we'll go to the pub because you're like nobody really needs to know that and you're like, yeah they do they they really do so yeah
1: yeah they do
3: Uh,
0: yeah but I I guess it's about couching it in tangible application isn't it rather than dry text but you know if something's written down and doesn't really translate it makes no sense whereas actually if you've got a training that talks about lots of complex different situations where there maybe isn't one cut and dry outcome actually you can engage people in a different and hopefully better way to get what you need from it yeah
3: and I think addressing these kind of that broad spectrum of 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 abuses of power that you know I think we've talked about this already in the earlier in the conversation but that idea of like you're either a baddie or a goodie and you're kind of you're either you know going to commit a serious serious crime criminal sexual assault or you're you're not going to do anything wrong at all or you know it's like there needs to be awareness on that in that middle ground because I think yeah it's often it's like well I've not I've not done that, so therefore I've not done anything, you know.
1: This conversation that we've had, we've really kind of intermingled talking about these two ends of the spectrum. But as you said at the time we're recording, the whole nation seems to be having a a moment of discussion around the matter of safeguarding and victim blaming and addressing misogyny. And I think I'm reflecting more and more on how it is the microaggressions, the tiny, the tiny things that you brush off because you're a woman, you've heard them a million times and you know, the person is well-meaning, you know, uh, the things that we accept, It it is that culture of misogyny that allows this other stuff to happen. Most people, as you say, thankfully, won't reach the heights of being that much of an awful human, but they've lived in a society that has essentially demoralised women's worth from the get-go. It's all around them, and there's nothing... When you reach those spheres, those places where you're doing these things and you're not getting caught and there's no... Uh, repercussion for your actions you know it just proves to you what society has told you all along that you are more important than your victim that you are more important than her and so you know I suppose that's my thought on why it's kind of okay that all these conversations mix into one and it's okay that people can be listening and think well i'd never abuse someone or that's brilliant that is really really brilliant and you can help stop somebody from abusing someone by addressing these smaller issues at the bottom where most of us thankfully reside right yes great oh i've said something really articulate i've been learning so much from pinky doing this podcast thanks, <laughs> thanks babes <laughs> is there anything we haven't touched that you guys would like to bring
2: forward there's like so much but not us at the same time
3: <laughs> yeah it, it, i think that's what we always realize is just you could just talk about this for hours couldn't you and yeah. It's, yeah. it's so complex and yeah i mean i, I just want to sort of i just want to get really angry and ranty but i'm not going
0: to (laughs) (laughs) i think angry and ranty is also good (laughs) angry and ranty is my i've been keeping a (laughs) lid thank you so much bit collective for spending time talking with us about so many important issues before we end i just wondered whether or not you had any particular call to action that you might like our listeners to be aware of
3: yeah well we thought we might share our statement that we that we published on social media last summer, and we had a lot of support from the industry with that statement. So we thought we might read that out. So it goes like this, a growing number of young female musicians are risking their livelihoods and forfeiting their anonymity in order to speak out about their personal experience of sexual abuse, assault, harassment and coercion by men on the folk and traditional music scene, both in Ireland and the UK. We acknowledge their honesty, courage, anger and pain and their right to seek justice. As a diverse musical community and industry, we must not respond with silence or complicity. We are calling on folk and traditional music organisations, artists, festivals, industry workers, education establishments, music fans and audiences to support a fundamental culture change that ensures women's safety, equality and dignity. We need a code of ethics which protects women and folk and traditional music from sexual harassment and assault and sends a clear, zero-tolerance message to male perpetrators. This is the moment to redress power imbalances, promote a culture of respect, trust and equality, and create safe, collaborative environments in which all folk and traditional musicians can share and enjoy the music that we love.
1: That's it. We didn't even need the interview, (laughs) to be honest. That sums it up perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite emotional hearing that, actually. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Culture of respect. That was mine. That's the basis of it all, isn't it? Thank yep. you so much. Your insights have been utterly incredible. And I know that you folks wanted to highlight as well that, you know, we're all of us here are, believe in intersectional feminism and inclusivity and diversity. And we're very aware that we're women of a certain age, women of a certain colour. And, you know, if people have more to add on this conversation that we've missed because of that lens, then, you know, we want to talk to you and support you and amplify your voice. So thank you so much, Bit Collective. It's been a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you.
0: If you want to find out more about the Bit Collective and the hashtag Trad Stands With Her campaign, you can visit www thebitcollective.co.uk. We should also flag if you are based in England then there is a new sister organization working alongside the Bit Collective called Esperance and they can be found at www.esperancefolk.com.
1: And now we've got a song for you. I recently met a tremendous musician called Nicolette McLeod, beautiful songwriter, haunting deliveries in response to the stuff that's been happening in the last few months. And upon the topic that we've been discussing in this episode, um, she wrote this beautiful song and we wanted to share it with you. It's called Guard of Stories.
5: Today women lit candles, I don't light one at all. I stopped to think about her howls grasp at my throat. Assaulted on the common where they're taking flowers now. In the place for another woman, 40 years down the line. She taught me to be careful to not walk through the parks smile at strangers especially after dark my mother tried toward me instilling me with fear she wove a guard of stories about the freedom she had lost my mother loved her first husband he threw her down the stairs of their cottage In North London, she very nearly died My mother loved her father, he also loved to drink He was kept in a police cell to keep her and her mother safe My mother told me her truth of friends that she had known who turned out to be her attackers when she was there alone. If I ever have daughters, I'd want them to be free. To not need this guard of stories that I have.
1: We hope that you enjoyed that. You can find out more about Nicolette by visiting nicolette.me. Don't forget that you should follow us
0: on social and let us know what you want to hear more of in future shows. Tell us, we're listening. <laughs> we are currently also ranked in the top 25 for pod- podcasts on the theme of philosophy in the UK. We would love to stay there. Uh, <laughs> so please do rank us and share us with all of your friends so that we can keep those listings staying high. In the meantime, if you you've got songs for our April playlist on the theme of harassment and abuse then do let us know and I absolutely promise you that despite the subject matter there are some really uplifting anthems out there so please send them our direction
1: let's take Mike and Stitch in Time as the prime example of that (laughs) and later this month we'll be chatting with Ella Joy Hunt and Walmsley and listing our top feminist anthems i can't wait it's gonna be great ella was such a joy to chat to we laughed and laughed and laughed and we're excited to share the conversation with you so do come back and join us and we'll see you in a few weeks time take care feel better soon lucy (laughs) oh thank you
5: this podcast was a betty beetroot production